So, Yeshua said that he didn't come to do away with, with the law, with the Torah. But I figured out one verse, at the very least, that I think he did kind of render not true anymore. Let's, let's look at it for a second, just for fun. In Deuteronomy chapter 34, in our reading for this last week, Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 10, it says, Since that time, like when, when Moses died, and then Joshua uh, took his place, took the helm of the leadership of the nation, it says, Since that time, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom Yahweh knew face to face. And then it says, For all the, all the miracles, etc. I thought, Hey, actually that verse did have something of an expiration date on it because it was written before Yeshua came. And after that, that verse was written, Yeshua came and he was the prophet like Moses that was prophesied by Moses and uh, he was even greater than Moses. And Yahweh knew Yeshua, the beloved son, face to face. So I thought, well, maybe there's one verse that changed. But anyway, um, we are going to look at some some huge changes that the entire universe is going to go through in the future. Um, if, if you've, how many of you have seen a trailer for a DVD? I, I'm sure we all have. You know, they kind of sum up the DVD in a little one or two minute section and it's really fast paced and boom, boom, in your face often and it gives you the highlights. Well, these chapters are like the trailer for eternity. So if you want to have a look at how ultimate reality is going to play out and who's going to be there and who isn't, Read these chapters and take them seriously. So that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be spending most of our time in Revelation chapters 21 and 22. And uh, we're going to go through them. I'll break down some words for you. We'll extrapolate some main themes. And we'll get some practical stuff out of this too. Um, As some of you know, I've been on a quest this year. I've been on a quest to understand the gospel. Because, uh, as most of you know, like I grew up in an evangelical home, and, uh, and I loved God, and I never really walked away from Him. But at the same time, I never felt like the gospel really grabbed me. I never really felt like it was something that was set on fire inside of me. It wasn't something that I found very exciting. And I came to realize, I think there's more to the gospel than what I've ever understood. And uh, so, I, last year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, I watched the movie The Passion of the Christ... For the first time, I didn't watch it when it came out because I'm not trendy, but I felt like I want to watch this to remember the atonement that I have in Yeshua. And it hit me really hard, and I bawled, and I really started, I had a new desire after that to understand the gospel. And so that, that's, that's something, you know, I've preached about regularly through this year. What, what is the gospel? What is your version of the gospel? If someone was to look at your life, what would they say, yeah, okay, that's the gospel? Um, so we're going we're to look at some of that in these chapters. I think you could say the gospel culminates in these chapters. Like it's the final result. It's the great apex. It's the, it's the, it's the, the final climax of the gospel. And that's really exciting because we live in a world that's broken. We live in a world where there are a lot of people who are hurting, who are discouraged, who have lost heart. I'm one of them at times. And to read these chapters, it kind of gives me some hope. Because sometimes I really wrestle with just how much brokenness and evil there is in the world. So this, this is really exciting. Um, actually, when I read these chapters and its description, I think the Jehovah's Witnesses have a better clue about some of this than we do sometimes. Have any of you looked at a Jehovah's Witness publication um, where they talk about when Jesus comes back and what it's going to be like? It's, it's like everyone's kind of standing around in a park and there are lots of animals, kind of like a petting zoo. Some of them are, would generally be really ferocious, but you know, they're pretty tame. And everybody's dressed like they just walked out of a church service in the 1950s and everyone has really kind of happy, serene looks on their faces. Um, I, I don't like really study Jehovah's Witness publications, but I like pictures. So I was looking through one and I was like, wow, these are kind of cool pictures. But it got me thinking, I think sometimes the Jehovah's Witness people, I, I, I'm not saying I agree with their doctrine at all, okay? But I'm saying when it comes to an understanding of what stuff's going to look like when Yeshua comes back, I think they're miles ahead of most believers, quite honestly. Because for most of us, what do you think of? What, what's going to happen when Jesus comes back? What is it going to look like? 
Ask yourself that, you know. Um, people will often say, well, um, you know, uh, he's going to come back and we're going to be really happy and we're going to be with him forever. And maybe we'll be like up in the clouds and maybe we'll be plucking harps and maybe there'll be a lot of gold or something. And, and for a lot of people, that's as far as it goes. Like when it comes to quantifying what stuff's going to look like, when it comes to a detailed description of what you're going to be doing forever when Messiah comes back, it's like, I don't know, man, I can hardly pay my bills. I don't think much about that stuff. But it's important because it's the gospel. And because we are a people who are all about the gospel. So um, for me, when I actually start reading the Bible literally and reading these chapters literally, it, it's really exciting. And I think it is important to read the Bible literally. So, so let's do that in here. Uh, last week we looked at Revelation chapter 20. It says Yeshua comes back and there's a thousand year block of time on planet earth where he is the king and where he rules from Jerusalem. We talked about how most of the early church fathers for the first several centuries believed in the concept of a literal thousand year kingdom on planet earth. We looked at chapters from Ezekiel, from Jeremiah, from Zechariah, from Isaiah that described in detail what it's going to look like after Yeshua comes back for that thousand-year block of time. Um, if, and I encourage you, dig into those prophetic books. I, I, too often we as believers spend most of our time in the New Testament, and that's good, we want to be a New Covenant-oriented people, but we spend very little time in the Old Testament because you actually have to use your brain when you read the Old Testament. You actually have to start reading stuff literally and it will challenge your theology in certain areas because the Old Testament is, has a lot to do with Israel. And if Israel is irrelevant in your worldview or if you think that God is done with Israel, the Old Testament is going to kind of be like boring or not make a lot of sense or it'll feel irrelevant or maybe you'll just try to be tempted to spiritualize it all away when it's very literal stuff. So that's why um, reading the ancient prophets of Israel is really important, because it's about your future, unless you're going to hell. And then there's some stuff in there about your future too. So Revelation chapter 20, um, it, 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 it just basically says, you know, Yeshua comes back, the righteous are resurrected from the dead, they rule with him for a solid thousand year block of time, Satan's all tied up, at the end they untie Satan, he goes out and deceives the nations, they come up and stupid, like, this is the most stupid-tastic thing you could ever do, they come up and attack, like, Jerusalem, where Yeshua's reigning in person with all these people that he raised from the dead. And so God, like, wipes them out and... And then we hit Revelation chapter 21, which is where we're at today. Revelation 21 verse 1 says, Then. Everybody say, Then. then. Okay? So you need to differentiate this very clearly. There is a difference between Revelation chapter 20, which is the thousand-year reign of Christ on planet Earth, and Revelation chapter 21. Stuff changes after that thousand-year block of time. I, I have a friend who calls it the cosmic shemini. Shemini is the Hebrew word for an eighth. Everybody say eighth. eighth. Um, it's kind of like an octave. Uh, you know how numbers mean stuff? And the number seven equals like completion. Like a week is seven days. It's a complete week. And then the eighth is like the beginning of the new week. So in Hebrew we say the Shemini. So the cosmic Shemini is like when the whole universe starts over again. Stuff is made new, and it's like entering into the era that's represented by the number 8. I like the term cosmic shemini, so I might throw that around a little bit for you. But anyway, that's, that's what we have in the beginning of Revelation chapter 21. This is very useful when you are reading through the Bible, and you hit a prophecy, and it hasn't been fulfilled yet. If it hasn't been fulfilled yet, then it's going to happen in the future. And often the big question will be, Hmm, does this happen in the thousand-year rule of Messiah in Revelation 20? Or does this happen in Revelation 21 and 22, in the cosmic semini, in the new heavens and new earth? So remember that. You basically have two drawers, and all of the Bible prophecies, unless they've already happened, will fall into one of those two drawers. And it's really helpful to understand that. We'll go into that in more detail as we, as we read here. In uh, Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, it says there is a new earth and a new heaven. I'm going to focus more on the new earth in this discussion because the new heaven, like, I don't know, that's kind of far out there. Um, maybe like a different set of stars or whatever. Maybe a different colored sky. I mean, I don't know. That doesn't... But it says here there's also a new earth. Everybody say earth. That's like planet earth. Like you're, you're on it right now. Your body is composed of the stuff. 
It says there's going to be a new one. So it doesn't say the physical dimensions are obliterated and we all just kind of float in this ethereal bliss forever. There's going to be a new earth. Physical dimensions continue to exist. That's the first thing we want to notice there. It also mentions the first earth passed away. I'm going to give you two Greek words and we're going to kind of flip-flop between them because it helps us understand the Old and New Covenants also. The Greek word for the first earth is the protos. Everybody say protos. You know the word prototype? What is a prototype? Yeah, it's like, it's like the original model of something. If you have a prototype airplane, it's their first design, and then they put a pilot in it and throw it through the skies, and if it blows up, it's like, well, that was a failure. We better go on to the second one. The protos didn't work. Okay, so that's like the first one, the protos. So the protos earth, is, uh, it passes away. I'm going to give you the other Greek word here for new. The Greek word for new is kainos. Everybody say kainos. Um, You remember Yeshua talked about putting new wine that's like fresh and effervescent, putting it in a new wine skin? Because they didn't use bottles then, they used leather skins. If you can imagine like toting around a leather water bottle. You kind of look like a cowboy or something. But that's the idea. And Yeshua said they put new wine into kainos wineskins. Fresh wineskins is the idea there. All right? um, that's the same word for where he talks about a new garment also. A kainos garment. Um, it's, I, I, I like, it, it has the idea of being fresh. Everybody say fresh. fresh. So where it says new, it has the idea of freshness. Him making a fresh earth and a fresh heaven. Him having a, making a fresh covenant with his people. I like that. Sometimes new is almost cliched. But when you say fresh, you're going to get a better feel for that. The Hebrew word... Okay, so I gave you the English new. The Greek is what? Kainos. And I'm going to give you the Hebrew word also. The Hebrew word for new is chadash. Everybody say chadash. All right. And that word can mean brand new, like hot off the press, brand spanking new, never seen before. It can also mean renewed. All right? That's very important. The Hebrew word for new can also mean renewed. I'll give you an example. The, uh, the calendar of Israel is based on the cycles of the moon. So, you know, the moon, when it's full, that's halfway through the month, and then the moon wanes for two weeks, and then it disappears. You go outside and it's gone. And don't freak out. It's still there and it'll come back. It will renew itself, okay? So when the moon, when that first little crescent appears again, that is the Hebrew word for new. Now let me ask you, is that a new moon? Is it a brand new moon? That, re- that No, it's the same moon, but it's renewed, all right? So that's the, that's the Hebrew word for new, chadash. That's important because this prophecy of a new earth is quoting the prophet Isaiah. And I'm going, to, I'm going to read you a verse from Isaiah. You can read it if you want, if you want to turn there, or you can just listen while I read it to you. Isaiah chapter 65, verses 17 to 18. This is what the God of Israel says. Look, I create new heavens. What's the Hebrew word for new? Chadash. And a new earth. What's the word for new? Chadash. So it's a chadash heavens and a chadash earth. And the former things, what, what would be the Greek word for the former things, the first set, the protos, won't be remembered or come to mind. That's interesting. Remember that. The former things, the protos, isn't even going to be remembered. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For look, I'm creating New York for rejoicing. Uh, oh, sorry. Uh, I'm creating Salt Lake City for rejoicing. Oh, oh, sorry. Um, I'm creating Jerusalem. For rejoicing and her people for gladness. Did you notice that? God says when he creates the new earth, he's creating Jerusalem anew also. He didn't say New York or Salt Lake City or even Prince Albert. He said Jerusalem. Okay, he goes on to say in Isaiah chapter 66, the next chapter. By the way, if you haven't read Isaiah chapter 65 and 66, read them because they are a trailer of planet Earth's future. They are a look at what's going to happen. 
and it's quite literal. And some of it will probably blow you out of the water. Some of it will probably not fit your theological box. You may, you may need to either throw those chapters out, or you may need to go, go and like restructure your theological box, or quit reading the Bible literally. Those are your, kind of your options. In Isaiah chapter 66, the next chapter, verse 22, this is what he says. Just as the new heavens and the new earth, so this is all about revelation, right? which I make will endure before me, declares Yahweh, so your descendants and your name will endure. Who is he talking to? Let's have a look at that. You can, look, you can turn to Isaiah 66 if you want. I'm going to give you the, a couple contextual elements from Isaiah 66. Um, and uh, something that I've been pointing out often is, like, hopefully we can come to the Bible without a theological bias. Hopefully we can let, like, kind of make our lives relevant to the Bible instead of trying to make the Bible relevant to our lives. There's some stuff in here that, frankly, I think some people would wrestle with. Isaiah chapter 66, it talks a lot about Jerusalem and about, um, about Zion in the new heavens and the new earth. There's even, a ver- in verse 17, it even talks about people who um, do some weird stuff like sanctify and purify themselves to go to the gardens following one in the center. Some kind of weird cultic gardens who eat swine's flesh, detestable things, and mice will come to an end altogether, declares Yahweh. That, isn't that interesting? Like, just think about this for a sec. God's talking about the new heavens and the new earth, and he says there aren't going to be people there who eat mice or pigs. That's interesting. Okay? I don't know. Maybe some of that stuff in the Old Testament will still be relevant when Yeshua comes back. Who knows? I mean, there's some. I would encourage you dig into those verses and see what it says. Um, he goes on in Isaiah 66, verse 19, to say he's going to bring survivors from the nations after he reveals his glory. And in verse 20, they're going to bring the people of Israel from the nations to his holy mountain, Jerusalem. This is future tense. Jerusalem is holy according to the Bible. And then he says, I will also take some of them for priests and for Levites, says Yahweh. So did you get that? In the future, God is going to choose priests and Levites once again. They're not just past tense, these guys. And then he goes on to say, in the next verse, this is the context, just as the new heavens and the new earth which I make will endure before me, so your offspring, speaking to Israel, speaking to the Levites and the priests, that is to say the sons of Aaron, and your name, that is to say your identity, your job description, they will endure. Then he goes on in the next verse to say that everybody on the planet is going to worship him from new moon to new moon, which is like the Hebrew calendar which, you know, we're beginning to learn about, but which most of the world is totally out of touch with, and from Sabbath to Sabbath. It's going to be a global days of worship. Wow. That is a DVD trailer of your future. That's a peak of heaven, in my understanding. Um, let's, let's keep going here. Okay, the book of Hebrews. It talks about old and new quite often, doesn't it? And when it talks about the old, like the old sacrificial system, the old covenant, it uses that word protos. Everybody say protos. When it talks about the new covenant, it uses that word kainos. Everybody say kainos. Like, like a fresh covenant. And uh, I, I want to look at something with you along those lines. In uh, Hebrews chapter 8, it's, it's contrasting the two. And... Um, the, the popular interpretation of the verse, these verses is basically the Old Covenant is totally finished with, it's done away with, it's in the past, totally irrelevant, and only the New Covenant is the one that matters yet, at, at this point. Um, God, is, God is finished with previous covenants. I, I, I personally believe that the previous covenants of God continue to stand uh, for several reasons. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is talking to Gentile believers and he says, you used to be far away, but now you are close to God's covenants of promise. And he says it in the plural. In other words, it's not just the new covenant. If you're a Gentile believer, then through faith in Messiah, you are a member of God's covenants. That includes some of those older covenants. He also says in Romans chapter 9 that the covenants belong to Israel. He doesn't say the covenants belong to Israel until Messiah came and changed everything and did away with them. He said the covenants continue to belong to Israel. So on that basis, I would say 
there's more to what God is doing on planet earth and how he relates to his people than only the new covenant. The new covenant is, is our, it's, 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 it's our prime orientation, it's our foundation, but the other covenants matter too. They're relevant. That's, that would be my understanding. So let's look at something in Hebrews along those lines. Hebrews chapter 8. The last verse is this is what he says. When he said, a new, a kainos, he has made the first, the protos, and then the word there is for when your clothes get old. Like if you ever wear a pair of jeans until you get holes in the knees and your, your elbow is beginning to show through or whatever, that's that word, okay? It's beginning to wear out. It's getting older over time. That's what's happening with the protos. And then he says, but whatever is becoming that word for like your, your clothes wearing out and getting old is ready to disappear. So I want you to notice something there. He didn't say the old, the protos, is already gone. It's already vanished. He says it is getting older, it is wearing out, and it will disappear. But he didn't say it had already. That's very critical. A lot of scholars, some scholars would suggest this was written after the destruction of the second temple or around that time. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to make a suggestion to you based on uh, this concept. I'm going to suggest to you that the old covenant doesn't expire until Revelation chapter 21. Because there's a lot of promises in the old covenant that haven't been fulfilled yet. There are many prophecies in the books of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, etc. that haven't been fulfilled and won't be until Yeshua comes back. And they're old covenant promises. So I'm going to suggest to you that the old covenant isn't going to actually disappear. It is not going to like, totally wear out until then. Now does that mean we are old covenant oriented exclusively? No. We are new covenant oriented. But there's a place for the old covenant still. There's a place for Israel. Yeah, that's what I, that would be my understanding. The old covenant will wear out when the new heavens and the new when the heavens and earth are renewed. Because at that point, there won't be sin anymore. So God won't have to be like, "Don't do this and don't do that." At that point, like everything is going to change. We'll, we'll get into that more in just a in just a second. So you know, I would also I also I don't believe that we have seen the fullness of the new covenant. We're definitely in the New Covenant. Yeshua inaugurated it through His shed blood. But at the same time, God made some promises in conjunction with the New Covenant that haven't been fully fulfilled yet. Like He said stuff like this. You're not going to have anybody preaching or teaching anymore. Nobody's going to say, Know the Lord to each other because everybody's going to know Me. He said, The earth is going to be full of My glory like the ocean basins are full of water. Is the ocean pretty full of water? Yeah. He said that's what it's going to be like. Like planet Earth is going to be submerged in His glory. We're not at that stage yet. What that tells me is there's more to the new covenant than what we have yet experienced. And it's coming. So I would suggest to you that we're not going to see the fullness of the new covenant either until Yeshua comes back and until we enter into that, that, that era of the new earth. That's, that's my personal opinion. We'll have to see how things happen. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 2, I want you to notice something here. How, what's the gospel that you've heard? For many of us, the gospel we've heard is, you know, give your life to God. It'll look something like saying the sinner's prayer, asking Jesus into your heart, and then you'll go to heaven when you die. Often that's the big selling message in tracts or in the gospel. You want to go to heaven when you die. You want to go to heaven. You don't want to go to hell. What they don't tell you is what happens in the final two chapters of the Bible. It actually doesn't say that we all go up to heaven and we kind of chill out in heaven forever. What it says is the holy city of Jerusalem comes down to planet earth. And you live on planet earth forever in the holy city of Jerusalem with Messiah. That's really physical. That's really physical. Let's look at that together for a second. And um, we'll see what we can we can make of, make of that. I, that. Is that the gospel you've heard though? Like if, if you were to share the gospel with someone, would part of it be, I believe that Jesus is alive today because God raised him from the dead and it's a historical fact 
and he's coming back to be king over planet earth and to crush all of his enemies and every government that opposes him. He's going to set up God's kingdom on planet earth for a thousand years and then Jerusalem's going to come down out of heaven and we're all going to live in Jerusalem forever. Really, is that your gospel? Is your gospel that we're going to live with Jesus in the holy city of Jerusalem forever? That's cool. I really like that. So anyway, Jerusalem's still going to be around forever. Um, here's, here, here's another verse that gives us some, some, another detail here. It's a clue. Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. It says there isn't going to be any more death. No more death. Okay, that is part of our hope. I'm sure we've all lost loved ones. Some of us tragically. But our hope is there is going to be a time when there is no death. Yeshua has abolished death through the gospel. He is in the process of clearing it out completely. And death is a temporary thing. That is, that is, that is good news for the world. But get this. Get this. Before this, in the thousand year reign of Christ, there will still be death. If you read Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48, it talks about the Levites and priests doing their job at the rebuilt temple. It's going to be a really, really nice temple. It gives architectural dimensions for a temple that's never been built. And what that means is if there's still going to be animal sacrifices in the thousand year reign of Christ, and this is how I read it, this is how I understand it, there's still going to be death. Um, the very fact that at the end of that thousand year block of time, Satan's going to be released and the nations are going to do the stupidest thing ever and go up against Jerusalem would suggest that there's still going to be death because God kills them all at the end of the thousand years. Um, I'll, give you another, I'll give you another passage along those lines. Isaiah chapter 65. I'll read you another verse from Isaiah chapter 65, verse 20. This is what he says. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. That's good news. Or an old man who doesn't live out his days, for the youth will die at the age of a hundred. So did you notice that? There will be a time when like, you'll hit puberty around, a hun- around your hundredth birthday. Like you'll become a teenager around a hundred. Okay? And um, what does it say? And the one who doesn't reach the age of a hundred will be thought accursed. So it's like... Man, if you die before the age of 100, they'll be like, he died really early, man. He, didn't, he only lived to be 104. He just didn't get to really experience much of life. That's what it says. So my, my assumption would be that that will be, that will be happening in the thousand-year rule of Christ. Um, maybe the law of entropy will be revoked to some degree. Our bodies won't break down so fast. We're going to live for a long time. Can you imagine being a kid until, for 100 solid years? I mean, that'd be so much fun. Like, I, I loved building forts and stuff when I was young, and I could have built some really cool forts if I had, like, a hundred years to build them. Like, huge underground forts and stuff. Or, like, or can you imagine going to school until you're 150 years old? I don't know. It's just kind of interesting to try and imagine what that would look like. Or having to wait till you're, like, 200 years old before you're old enough to get married? Man, that would be interesting. Can you, can you imagine, like... Parents, can you imagine having your kids live at home with you for the first 200 years? You can get a lot of work out of them, hey? So, I mean, it's kind of cool to read about that. But my guess is that'll happen after Yeshua comes back and before the new earth when death is permanently uh, finished. That's my guess. Um, In that verse, he also says stuff like physical pain or inner pain. Um, Stuff like grieving and crying. That's temporary. That's good news for the world. It's temporary. There will be a time when Yeshua permanently gets rid of that stuff. And he's going to comfort everyone personally who are, who are his people. In verse 5, um, the one who sits on the throne, the great king, he sums it up by saying, I'm making everything new. I'm making everything new. In um, verse 6, it goes on to talk about being thirsty. It's kind of like, blank, where did that come from? Kind of out of the blue. It's like we're talking about this stuff, and then all of a sudden he's talking about being thirsty. Um, how many of you have been really thirsty before? Have any of you like fasted for a whole day without water? Okay, how many of you, how many of you have gone for several days without water? I, I've done a couple four-day fasts without eating or drinking, and I'm telling you, by the time you hit three or four days without drinking any liquids, you are very thirsty. I mean, really. Or even if you've just gone for like half a day and you've been working like doing something outside and active, 
and like you're thirsty, it's like you have this craving in your gut and all you can think about is water. Like you would, you would, you would drink almost anything. You know what I'm saying? And that's the analogy that the Bible uses for this deep spiritual need that every one of us has for real life. It's just like this deep craving. It's like something in you is just pulling and you need to pull something into yourself to fill that. And here, here, here's a fact, okay? Um, we all have like people we go to school with, uh, classmates or coworkers or extended family members. Everybody on planet Earth is drinking. Okay, everybody's thirsty and everybody's drinking. So all of us have that deep like craving and all of us are filling it with something. That's a biblical fact. That's something you have in common with everybody. So like the person who's really just happy and relaxed and really successful and they have their life together, that person has a deep thirst and that person is filling it with something. And what God says is, I'm kind of giving you the choice here. Like you can drink from the water that I can give you. You can be satisfied in a spiritual life with me or you can drink from the toilet. And you know, the toilet isn't very clean often. And maybe someone's got their head in the bowl and they're slurping it up and they're like, but I'm thirsty. And it's like, you're thirsty. And yeah, the toilet, drinking from the toilet is going to satisfy your thirst temporarily, but you're going to have to keep coming back and it's gross and it's probably going to make you sick. And that's, that's the picture that God uses for where we go for a satisfaction. So, like, in our culture, people drink from so many sources for satisfaction. Often it's in a dating relationship. That's where, you, that's where you get your satisfaction. Or working really hard, really long hours, and seeing how much money you can make before you die. Or um, seeing how many friends you can get on Facebook, maybe. I know I shouldn't say that, because I have a ton of friends, and you guys are going to be like, yeah, he's just addicted to Facebook, and that's not true. But, um, it, like, everybody drinks, right? Everybody's drinking from something. And what God is saying here is like, come to me and I'll, give, I'll really satisfy you. And all that other stuff, it's not going to work. It might work temporarily, but it's going to mess you up in the end. And you're not going to get to be with me. Um, in verse 7, he goes on to, he goes on to um, describe an experience. Okay, Revelation 21.7. Um, he says, there are going to be a bunch of people who inherit this stuff. So that means this becomes your possession. This is like, this is your experience forever. Um, And I'll be his God and he'll be my son. So like knowing him as your God and being his child. He says this happens for people who overcome. I don't know, we don't really use the word overcoming in everyday speech, do we? Not too often, hey? What's the idea of overcoming? The idea of overcoming is like to win. So if you're in a fight, if you're in the boxing ring, and you're the last man standing, you overcame. You won. If you are um, in a battle, if you're an army and you're in a battle, and you're the army that is left standing, you overcame. You won. That's the idea. And he says, for those people who overcome, who win, I'm going to be their God. And I'm going to call them my son. I'm going to call them my daughter. And they're going to experience all this stuff in... In, in, in the new earth. That's huge. So God didn't say like just everybody makes it. He says you are in a battle and there's a fight and you need to win. And he backs us, doesn't he? Like his grace is there to help us come through. For some of us, we've just given up. We have gone belly up or maybe we've just put our fingers in our ears and said, there's no battle. There's nothing to fight. But there is. Um, he goes on to contrast that. He contrasts, so you have the, on the one side like people who overcome, who win the war, and then on the other side he lists a bunch of other people that don't make it. So basically they don't make it into the new Jerusalem, they don't get to live on the new planet earth, they get to spend eternity with the devil and a bunch of evil, foul spirits um, being tortured. And um, I, I want to li- I, I go through these with you also. This is like the contrast in um, Revelation 21, verse 8, he lists a bunch of people. He says, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The second death. So the first death is like when your body dies. The second death is significantly more freaky and final. Um, let's, let's look at those things. The first thing he lists, this is a shocker, is the cowardly. Isn't that crazy? 
I mean, really, in our box, if you were to say, okay, who are the people that are most likely to go to hell? We would be like, well, maybe Satan worshippers, or, um, like, serial murderers, or um, my really grumpy neighbor, or whatever. You know, like, we all kind of have our box, and it's like, these people would go, go to hell for sure. God says the first people you say are going to hell are the cowardly. Why would he say that? He'd say that because Yeshua said, if you're on my side, good. But if you're not, you're my enemy. And you can't get by with your mouth closed. He said, like, if you talk about me, if you're not afraid to say, I'm a disciple of Yeshua, I'm going to be proud of you when I come back. And I'm going to welcome you in my kingdom. But if you're a coward, if you're afraid to say that you believe in me, if I just take up some little place in the back of your life, I'm not going to be proud of you when I come back. I'm not even going to recognize you. I'm going to be like, I don't know this guy. You know, I'll, I'll get, get rid of him. That's what Yeshua said. Maybe that's why he said the first category of people that don't make it in are the cowards. And I will confess to you, I am a coward. This is something I've really had to work through for the last several years, and I'm still working through. I hate conflict. I really don't like the idea that anyone wouldn't like me. Seriously. Like if someone were to unfriend me on Facebook, it would break my heart. Maybe not, maybe not to that degree, but like that's the kind of person I'm, okay? I don't like rocking boats. So, and I'm really, I'm really politically correct usually. And you know what? Sometimes that equals me being a coward. So if there's a chance for me to talk about Yeshua, or if someone's like spouting stupid lies, I'm not generally the kind of person who will step in and be like, actually, that's not true and this is why. Or actually, I disagree with that and this is why. Or, yeah, actually, I'm different. I believe in Yeshua and this is how I think history is going to happen in the future. Like, I have a hard time with that. I really do. And verses like this are verses that the Father has taken and slugged me in the gut with. And being like, you need to change, boy. And it's been good because His Spirit's there to empower me and to make me bold and to enable me to step out and like say stuff that I would not say on my own. Kind of like the Simon Peter flip. You know, Simon Peter, some little girl is like, hey, weren't you with Jesus? And he's like, no, 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 I don't even know the guy. I mean, and then like a couple days later, he's like a lion and he's standing like publicly in the temple and he's saying, you crucified the Messiah. Like total turnaround. And that's what the Spirit of God does in us. And, that, and that's the gospel for every one of these things. We can look at this stuff and we can be like, that's me. I should go to hell. And God says, but I'm here to change you from the inside out and my spirit's here to do it for you. So let me do it in you. That's the gospel. And thank you, Father, for the gospel. Thank you for your spirit that is filling us and changing us from the inside out. So there, there are so many areas where we can be cowards. And I challenge you, let God show you in the next couple of weeks the areas where you are a coward. And let him, let him change you. Turn over a new leaf. If you're not used to speaking out, if you're not used to taking initiative... If you're uh, uh, too afraid of what people think to like be outspoken, let, let Yeshua change you. Let him give you a holy boldness because he'll do it if you ask him. What, what did James say? It says, if you don't have something, it's because you haven't asked God for it. So just ask God for it and he's going to give it to you. Yeah, so that's the first category of people who go to hell, cowards. Um, number two, the second slot of people who go to hell is the unbelieving. And seriously, this is a big thing. We, we, will all be, we would all be like, yeah, like I, I believe like I'm a Christian, right? I prayed the sinner's prayer and I've gone to church lots. And that doesn't mean you believe God. Do you believe God? I mean, God communicated a lot of stuff in his word. Do you believe him? Are there areas where maybe you don't believe him yet? Do, what does your lifestyle say? Does your lifestyle say that you believe God? This is a lifelong journey. Like, that's why studying the Word is so important. Because when we leave our Bible on the shelf, when we don't like get into it every day and keep changing the way we think and changing the way we do life so that it looks more like the Word, when we don't do that, what we're saying is, I don't believe God. Ouch. And it's way too easy to be lazy with that. So, yeah, that's the number two category. And like, I'm trying to talk about this on a level where I'm at and where we're at, instead of just being like, yeah, that's my neighbor down the street. You know, he plays ACDC till 3 o'clock on Friday evenings. He's going to go to hell for sure. You know, no, we, we have to look at ourselves. Um, the next category that make it to hell is the abominable. Everybody say abominable. 
If you grew up watching Bugs Bunny, then your understanding of Abominable will probably be that huge snowman. Did any of you see the Abominable snowman in Bugs Bunny? Okay, yeah. So anyway, um, it's like it's not a word that we really use in our culture, but it basically just means gross. Everybody say gross. Okay, in Hebrew, abominable means gross. So for instance, I really don't like bananas. I think bananas are gross. So you could say bananas are an abomination to me. All right, that's the idea here. And we kind of have some inside humor with the family about that. We like to joke about how much I dislike bananas. I really do hate bananas, though. Like, they really are an abomination to me. I don't mean religiously, right? I just mean I think they're gross. I'm grossed out by them. So that's what the word abomination means, okay? Now, who's to say what is gross? I mean, is it just, are bananas, are bananas abominable? Will bananas not be in heaven because I say so? Um, because I don't like them? Really, this is a big question. What defines what's really gross? Uh, in our culture, we would say nothing defines it. Whatever you want and whatever you think is what defines that. As believers, we would say God's word, as communicated in the Bible, is what defines gross. God says it's gross, so it's gross. And did you know that actually the New Testament doesn't take much time at all to say what's gross? Because God already said what he thinks is gross in the Old Testament. If you read the Pentateuch, God says stuff like homosexuality is gross. And of course, you know, if we're evangelical, we'll be like, yeah, that's right, that's gross, God says it's an abomination. But what we neglect to read is the other passages in the Torah where God says eating pork and shellfish is gross too. He said that's an abomination too. Um, he also said that for husbands, having relations with their wife during their period is an abomination. God says that's gross. But those passages in the Torah don't get a lot of airtime for some reason. So what I would say is, as believers, I hope we read the whole Bible, and I hope that we don't just kind of cut and snip parts out of it. So could it be that, that the Old Testament is actually kind of like the dictionary, the book that defines words like abomination, um, for, for, for in the New Testament. Um, what would be some other ones here? Murderers. Murderers don't make it. Um, Yeshua said, if you are harboring a grudge against someone, if you have not let go and forgiven someone, if you have long-term hatred towards someone, you are a murderer. You are on par with a murderer. Um, Yeshua, uh, it also like scripture suggests, when we trash talk someone else, when we speak negatively about someone else, even if what we're saying is true, you are assassinating their character. When you, talk, when you trash talk someone else and they're not in the room, you have become a backstabber. Like, can you imagine if I pulled a big double-blade knife out of, my, out, of my, uh, out of my pants and I just came up and I started stabbing someone in the back over and over and blood was spurting everywhere? Like, we would be freaking out in this room. But often in the believing community, we backstab people and everybody sits there and just listens. Nobody freaks out. And it's evil. It's one of the evils that just have destroyed so many churches, so many congregations. And it's the same thing as murder. Because you're murdering that person's reputation. So I know, I've been hitting this hard for two years and I'm going to keep hitting it hard because frankly, sometimes in our community I still hear trash talk. I still hear people saying negative stuff about people when they're not in the room. And I never want to hear that. There's no room for that in our community. There is a time to confront someone's sin. There's a time to work through stuff. I don't, even, I don't care if I don't even know the person you're talking about. I don't want to hear negative stuff about them. Go, t- go deal with it with that person. Okay? Um, that's an example of how we as believers are often murderers. Um, the next one is immoral. The Greek word for immoral is pornos. Everybody say pornos. It's where we get the English word pornography from. It's from this word. Basically, pornos is any sexual activity outside of a marriage between one man and one woman. Okay? Sexual activity outside of a marriage commitment between one man and one woman is pornos. And you know what? There's a lot of stuff that happens in dating relationships. And it's like stuff where maybe the couple doesn't have sex, but they are involved in pornos. It's sexual activity. And God says, I hate that. And if you do that stuff, you're not my friend. And you are not going to make it to be with me forever. You've got to choose. So that's an example of, of, um, of that word. Uh, the next word, here's an interesting one. The New American Standard translates this word as sorcerers. Everybody say sorcerers. What do you think if you think of like guys with big pointy hats and like little wands and like 
dudes like that. The Greek word for sorcerers is pharmakos. Everybody say pharmakos. Pharmakos is the word that we get like pharmacy from, pharmaceuticals. It means drugs, basically, and narcotics. So in the ancient world, people would do drugs and then get high, and then they'd have spiritual experiences. Kind of like how people do today, actually. Kind of in the 70s, you know, you, you drop acid and you do whatever and you have really spiritual experiences. That's pharmacos, okay? So it doesn't just mean like the, the wizard dudes. Um, it means like drugs in general. Drug addicts would, would, would qualify. Um, people who abuse narcotics um, would also qualify. Pharmaceutical junkies might even qualify. Some of us, like every time we have an illness, we just start popping pills. Go to the pharmacy and pop some pills. And it's like an epidemic in the Western world. And if we go to our pharmacy first, instead of going to God first, we might actually qualify sometimes for this, like, for this category. So I, I'm not against medicine. I'm not against pharmaceuticals in, in proper applications. But hopefully we go to God first. Um, I think okay. Uh, another uh, another element of sorcery is like freaky control stuff, kind of like witchcraft. Um, if if you are an intercessor, this will be a danger because there are different ways of interceding. There are ways of interceding that are in the Holy Spirit that are in accordance with the will of God, and there are also ways of interceding that are soul power that amount to witchcraft and sorcery, where it's about getting what you want in a situation. And when you're praying for someone, or if you're an intercessor, be really careful that you pray in the Holy Spirit and that you watch out for witchcraft. Stay away from soul power and trying to control situations with the way you think or with your prayers. You have to remember, when you pray, God, you, you do the asking in faith and God does the doing. All right. So when we pray, we're not changing stuff through our works. We're asking Him to work. We're, we as His priests are giving Him that opening on planet Earth. That's how we would understand it. That's another area where I think sometimes we, we go astray. Um, and then finally, here are the last, uh, last two. Uh, liars. He mentions liars. Don't make it. Um, that doesn't just mean like people who tell really big fat lies. That's like little white lies. Basically, if you don't love the truth, if you'll compromise the truth, and kind of bend the story for your own selfish gain, God says, I hate that. You're not my friend if you do stuff like that. Um, it mentions in the next chapter not only telling lies, but practicing lies. So if you have religious observances or routines in your life that are based on lies and not the truth of the word of God, you may actually be a little more of a liar than what you think. In that regard, you know what? Every one of us has some shards of that in our lives. And that's why it's important to stay in the Word of God, to grow in His Word, and to let Him show us how to apply to our lives. Because Yeshua is the truth, and everything outside of Yeshua is falsehood. And we're growing. We are growing in Yeshua. Um, Frankly, I have some hesitancies with some of the traditional uh, observances in the different different, um, sectors of Christianity, because some of them aren't based on truth. Some of them are based on misinformation, or maybe half-truths. So that's why, like, in our congregation, we observe the biblical festivals, like Passover and stuff, because God gave those to his people, and, be- and because they're, they're, like, solid truth. Um, then the last category we can hit here is, he says, idolaters. When we think of idolaters, we think of, like, I don't know, maybe if you have some freaky little ogre statue in your closet... And when you really need good luck, maybe you bought like a lottery ticket and you really want to win, you go and like pray to the little statue in your closet or something like that. Often like when we think of idolatry, that's what we think of. What God says in the Ten Commandments is anything that comes before Him is an idol. So if you, whatever or whoever you give the best of your time to, the best of your money to, the best of your enthusiasm to, that's what you worship. And when we look at it like that, everybody on the planet is worshipping something or somebody today. Often in the Western world, we're like, yeah, I'm secular, you know, I'm not religious, I don't go to church and whatever. But you know what? Even the most hardcore atheists, the most secular people they, you know, they are worshipping something or somebody. Because we are compulsive worshippers. We can't help ourselves. God created us to worship. And neither will worship the Creator or we're going to worship something or somebody else, right? Either we drink from, like, 
the water that he gives us or we're going to be slogging from some toilet or poison or whatever is, is the idea. So I'll, I'll give you, here, here's some things in our culture that people worship as a god, but maybe we don't think of it like that. Uh, people worship themselves. It's called narcissism. Uh, people worship pleasure. It's called hedonism. Uh, people worship money. People worship sex. People worship their religious dogmas and rituals. How many, how many of you have encountered someone who has this certain pet doctrine or a certain way of doing church and that has become their god? They worship that. Even if they're confronted by truth that says, you need to change or that's not true. People sometimes worship religious stuff like that. Uh, people worship celebrities. Uh, we call them idols. We have our American idols. We have our Canadian idols. Uh, people worship entertainment. Uh, people worship social status. Uh, people worship academic achievement and degrees. That's a big one for some people. People worship other people. We call that humanism, or we call it, sometimes we call it dating. People worship technology. People worship video games. People worship their bodies and their image. Man, go to... Duh, I mean, go to a gas station or like superstore, right? What do you see? You see like everybody, we see all of our cultural idols lined up at the checkout counter. You can buy the idol. You can buy into the idol. You can worship the idol. And it's so easy. It's, it's everywhere, eh? Um, people worship sports teams. People worship political systems and ideologies. If you're a communist, you probably worship the communist ideology. Some people worship their, um, their political parties. I'm trying to give you a broader definition of worship. Basically, whatever you give the best of your time, the best of your money, your enthusiasm to, your, your greatest affections, that's what you worship. So you know what? For some of us, we might even worship the Rough Riders. Because you know God is kind of boring, but we go nuts at a Riders game. Seriously, that may be a symptom that you actually have an idol in your life. Because you get more revved about the riders than about God. And God is awesome. But he, you know what? He does take some getting to know. If it, so um, anyway, basically all that to say, what this passage says is, if you have anything or anybody in your life ahead of God and ahead of Yeshua, you're an idolater and you are going to hell. Unless you change, unless you turn around, unless you repent, unless you walk away from the garbage or whatever it is that you're worshipping and put him, make him first. And again, it's not just something that you think, it's not like just a little choice you make in your head. It's not just, it doesn't mean just going to church or synagogue once a week. It's like, on a daily basis, what are you most excited about? What do you give the best of your time to? If, if, if Yeshua were to come and do an audit on how you do your finances, would he see that you're paying like a ton of money for, um, on movies and like 500 channels and you're not giving him almost anything to his kingdom? If that's the case, you have an idol. Your finances will show that you have an idol. Those would be some examples. Okay, this is cool. Um, we're going to hit a couple more details here. This is really fun. There's some like really crazy paradoxes, kind of like mysteries in these chapters. I'm really curious to see how some stuff is going to turn out. So we're going we're to finish this discussion by looking at some of these paradoxes and uh, maybe puzzle over them a little bit. Here's an interesting one. Uh, this is in Revelation chapter 21, verse 12. This is going to be like totally irrelevant to some of you, but it's going to be very relevant to some of us. All right? In some sectors of the Messianic community, there are teachers who say you can't call God by the title God because God is a pagan word. They'll say God comes from the German word Gott, and that was actually a demon. And that actually, that word came from the ancient Middle East where there was a, uh, a pagan deity of luck called uh, Gad. How many of you have heard that? Maybe some of you have heard that, okay? It's an idea out there. So some, there's some sacred name people that would teach, don't use the term God because it's pagan and um, Yeshua doesn't like it. I'm going to suggest to you that that is not the case when you, look at the, when you look at the big picture. Now, I will say, I love the Hebrew names and titles of God. I think we should use them. I think we should grow in them. It clarifies who we're talking about. It's very meaningful. It's the language of heaven. But at the same time, we want to balance, we want to balance what we're doing. All right? um, one of the tribes of Israel was called Gad. You remember that. In Hebrew, it's more like God, okay? 
One of the tribes of Israel is called God. And if you read about how he got that name, he got that name because his mom, when she had him, said, How lucky! So she named him that name. That was actually, that was the name of a Middle Eastern pagan deity of luck. Okay? One of the tribes of Israel is named after the ancient Middle Eastern deity of luck. How lucky! So she named him, kind of be like calling someone lucky today. Okay? Um, except that people don't worship luck, unless maybe you're Chinese. Um, okay, so get that. That's the first thing. Moving on, um, this, this idea that no one should use the name God or call him that because it's pagan, people would say, well, that pagan God kind of migrated to Europe, and then in the Middle Ages, he became God. And the Germanic peoples, the Teutonic peoples, worshipped him, and it was a demon. And that's where we got the English name God from, so we shouldn't use that term. Okay, That's what some people will say. I'm going to suggest to you that that doesn't square with all of Scripture. Because when Yeshua comes back and we enter into the eternal state, there are 12 gates in the New Jerusalem, and one of them is named that. One of them is named Gad, or in Hebrew, God. The guy who was named after pagan deed, okay? You would think that if Yeshua had serious problems with that word, with that name, he wouldn't have let Gad be named it to begin with, or maybe he would kind of replace it with some other rosier Hebrew name in the, when, when the New Jerusalem comes down. But that's not the case, okay? So if you have serious problems with the English word God, just know that one of the gates into the New Jerusalem is going to be called that word. At the same time, you know, Use the term God if you have to, and I hope that we grow in the Hebrew names and titles of God too. So in Hebrew, we call him Elohim. Everybody say Elohim. I like calling him Elohim. Like when you read Genesis in Hebrew, it says, In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. And Elohim said, It, it saw that it was good, etc. So you know, grow in using the term Elohim. We, we do that here, but at the same time, I want to balance that out by saying that word is going to be in eternity and it's going to be on the wall of the New Jerusalem. So, if Yeshua doesn't have a major problem with that word, I don't either. Um, goes on to say, this holy city is founded on the apostles. If the holy city is founded on the apostles, hopefully we as a community are too. We take Yeshua's apostles seriously. We study them. We apply what they teach to our lives. And if an idea comes to us, we run it through the grid of what the apostles wrote. And if it doesn't square, we reject it. They are our grid. Um, this is cool. It gives the dimensions in Revelation 21.16 for the holy city. Do you know how big this city is? How big is Prince Albert? How many miles, miles wide is Prince Albert? Like a couple miles maybe? Okay. Okay. Okay, four or five miles. Jerusalem is going to be 1,500 miles across. So if you're driving at 60 miles an hour, how long is it going to take to get from one end to the other end? It's like... 600 miles is 10 hours, 1,200 miles is 20 hours, then you have another 300 miles, that's another 5 hours, 25 hours. If you're driving 60 miles an hour, it would take 25 hours to get from one end to the other end of the New Jerusalem when it comes down on planet Earth. Now, I really love Google Maps, so I got on Google Maps, and I was like, how big is that in the Middle East? And uh, I would encourage you to go home and check it out on Google Maps. Just Google Israel. It'll shoot you through to the Middle East. And then look at the little square and it'll be like, you know, one inch is uh, 600 miles or whatever. And you can figure it out. But basically, this city is going to reach from Israel in the west to the Iranian-Afghani border in the east. I mean, if you were to superimpose it over planet Earth. From the top of Turkey down to the bottom of Egypt and from the southern Russian border to the bottom of Saudi Arabia. In other words, if this city were to like come and just come down today, the Middle East would be gone. It would all be the New Jerusalem. So that's the future of the Middle East if you want a long-term, if you want a long-term look. That's the gospel right there. Jerusalem's going to come down out of heaven and squish everybody in the way. I mean, not necessarily, but you know what I mean. It's just going to be like, all of that stuff isn't going to be a problem when Yeshua comes back because he's the king. Um, in t- Revelation 21.17, this is very cool. It says, uh, like, human physical measurements are the same as angelic spiritual measurements. So the spiritual and the physical dimensions, they both have space in them, and they actually mirror each other. So like in, in heaven and in the new earth, there are physical dimensions. 
that's really cool. So like, you know, you have your cubit or whatever. Angels have cubits too. Um, they mirror each other. It makes it more solid. Um, in 2121, it says the gates are going to be made of pearls. That's fascinating because pearls are produced by not kosher animals. It's one of those things that's like, that's interesting. Just keep your kids from like chomping on the things when they get to to New Jerusalem or whatever, I don't know. In Revelation 21:22, it says there isn't going to be a temple after the thousand years. So Ezekiel 40 to 48 says there's going to be a temple. It gives the dimensions. Again, it's like those two drawers. Where does that fall in? The thousand year drawer or the eternal kingdom drawer? Well, that falls in the thousand year drawer because there isn't going to be a temple in, the, um, in, in, in eternity with Yeshua. Revelation 21, 23 and 25 says there's not going to be a sun anymore. This is fascinating. In, hold, hold, hold that thought. In, Revel, in, um, in 1979, two astronomers named, with the last names of Eddie and Bornazian came out with a study in which they suggested that the sun was shrinking at a rate of five feet per second which is about five miles a year. Um, After that, there were several teams of astronomers that came out with three or four other studies countering that, and there was a big discussion for several years. Um, But it is pretty quantifiable. The best evidence would suggest that the sun is shrinking. Conservative estimates would say, never mind five feet a second, we'll say one foot a second, which is about a mile a year, okay? So conservative astronomical suggestions would say that the sun is shrinking at a rate of a mile a year. That doesn't seem like much because the sun is about 870,000 miles in diameter. It's really big. 870,000 miles. What's that? Okay. But think about this. If you kind of enter into like the new earth and whatever, and the sun is still around within a million years, like you're hooped. The sun's going to burn itself out and it's going to be like, what are we going to do now? Um, so, you know, God goes, goes out of his way to say, there actually isn't going to be a sun because I'm going to be your source of light. I'm really happy about that. That means no more winter. Thank you, Father, for that. Um, anyway, uh, on the side note, this is a proof that this is a proof for a young earth hypothesis. Some people would say, you know, the earth is millions and billions of years old and several billion years ago, the little... little um, little blob turned into a bigger blob and got smarter and smarter and now here we are. And um, you know what? That's crazy though because if the sun has a steady rate of shrinking and it shrinks even one mile a year, then a million years ago the sun was over twice its size and a billion years ago the sun was over a billion miles in circumference. And you know what that means? It means that little blob that was trying to get smarter got fried. So it just doesn't work, basically. So remember that. The sun is shrinking. It's, it's, a, it's a fact, and it totally disproves evolution, and it disproves anyone who would even say God created the earth millions of years ago, and then he's kind of been creating stuff since then. It just doesn't fit with the fact that the sun is shrinking. In Revelation 21-24, it mentions the kings of the earth, there will be kings, and the nations of the earth, the goyim. So get this. When Yeshua comes back, there's still going to be nations. There's still going to be governments with, um, with uh, monarchs as heads of, heads of governments. There isn't only going to be Israel. There are going to be the nations. Does that mean those nations aren't going to be part of greater Israel? No, I don't think so. But just remember that. If you're a believer from the nations, you are part of Israel. And um, at the same time, you can still say, I'm Canadian or I'm, you know, I'm part Scottish or whatever. Um, Revelation 22 describes the river that is prophesied in Ezekiel 47. It's a literal river. In um, verse 2, it says that there are going to be some trees with, with fruit that heals the nations. And it says there's going to have a different crop every month. I just think that's interesting. There isn't going to be a sun or moon anymore, but there are still going to be months. It kind of reminds me of the first week where God created the sun, the moon, and the stars on the fourth day, but there were several days before that. What that tells us are, like, God has time and units of time, and they're still going to be around in eternity, and uh, they're still going to be months, as, as it would suggest here. Um, yeah, well, the book finishes with a very practical encouragement. Revelation twenty two fourteen. it says, Blessed are those who do God's commandments because they'll have a right to the tree of life. Uh, there, is, there is one old manuscript, the Alexandrinus, I think it is, that says wash their robes, and so most versions have gone with that. 
but I think the, the, the oldest text and the best ones of the majority would say, suggest that that should say, blessed are those who do his commandments. So faith in it is huge, but we need to act it out too. We need to read the Bible. We need to say, what has God commanded me to do? And we need to take that really seriously because that's an important element on the path to the tree of life. It finishes with our hope. Revelation chapter 22, verse 19 says this. This is your hope. It talks about the tree of life and living in the holy city. All right? I just, that blew me away. I've never even thought of that. Like, my big hope for the future is one day I'm going to get to eat from the tree of life, what Adam and Eve missed out on, and I'm going to be immortal. I'm going to get to live forever. And I'm going to get to live in Jerusalem with Yeshua. That's my picture of heaven. That is my great hope. And um, he says, what's our response to all this? What does Messiah's bride say? Come, Yeshua. What does the Spirit of God in you say? Come, Yeshua. So we live it up today for him. We do his word. And we're also really longing for when Yeshua comes back and all of this stuff happens. And that ends our two-year study through the whole New Testament, through all the writings of Yeshua's apostles. It's been an adventure, eh? Yeah. Hey. Thank you, Yeshua. Shalom. I'm Izzy Avraham. And thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.